your Bibles with me to John chapter 2, and uh, we're going to start with verse 23, and we're going to read all the way through uh, verse 7 of chapter 3, um, or actually verse 8 of chapter 3. So John 2, 23, says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel what I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and he hears its sounds. And you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. That is the word of the Lord. Amen. All right, so this morning I'm going to start off with the sermon summary. I'm going to give it to you right away. It's blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. That's what this sermon is going to be about. We'll touch back up on it towards the end. Uh, that is actually based off of Romans 4.8. Uh, Romans 4.8. And I, I love it whenever I have a sermon passage that is a sermon summary because that, that's a perfect description of what I want to say. I don't have to worry about the perfect wording of it because God's word is perfect. Uh, but that sermon summary there speaks of the person who is the recipient of God's grace, uh, that blessed person. Uh, the reason why they are blessed is because they are the recipient of God's grace. The fact is, the Bible is very clear about this, every man is stained by sin. But only those who are blessed have been cleansed from their sin. Every man is stained by sin, but only those who are blessed have been, stained, have been cleansed from their, their stain, have been cleansed from their sin, and they have been cleansed from their sin through a rebirth in Jesus Christ. And that's what our passage points out today. To be born again, and this is something we all must recognize, we must know it, to be born again is the most precious gift that we have from God. God gives us a lot of things. In fact, he gives us all things. All good things come from him. That's what we understand from scripture. But the most precious of these is the fact that we have this gift from God. It is called grace. And he has given it to us in order for us to be saved. Because man cannot know, he cannot serve, and he cannot enjoy God until he has been given a new life. So that is why it is the most precious gift that we have from God. And this is the beautiful truth that our passage communicates to us today. 
Again, this is a truth that we must know as Christians. Uh, that we, and a, a truth that we must never forget, especially in the darkest and, and, and the most troubling times in our life. The story of Nicodemus and Jesus teaches us some very important truths about how and why a person is born again. My hope is by the end of this sermon, uh, I pray that you will be praising God for his saving work in your life. That, that's what I hope that is the end the result of this sermon, that you're praising God. I also hope that if, uh, if there's any sin in your life, and if you're like me, there is, that you would repent from that sin because of the saving work that Christ has done for you. So I, I want to look at our, pas- our passage, and I want to start in verse 23, and I want to work our way through uh, to see what's going on here and how wonderful this passage is uh, for us today. First, verse 23, it says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover, Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Now, this is a, a passage that I would like to call a pivot passage. You've heard me use that terminology before. Uh, it, is, it is not a theological term. It is a Ricky Garcia term. I, I, I use that term to give me a better idea of what I'm dealing with in the passage. Just like a pivot foot in basketball. You can, you're, you're on that foot. You can move right. You can move left. It goes, you can go both ways. You can move all around if you wanted to, as long as you don't move that pivot foot. This verse, what I mean when I say a pivot passage, this passage goes with the passages that were before it and also after it. It goes along and it gives us a clearer understanding of what is going on. Now, it says that uh, this was, that he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast. This was the same Passover feast as the temple incident that Pastor Laramie preached about last week. We get from this passage that Jesus' ministry was far-reaching. It said many believed in his name. And we also know that there were many signs that Jesus performed. So, so many signs that they were not all documented in this book. That's what John 20, uh, 30 tells us, that Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples that are not written in this book. But the ones that were written were for our benefit so that we could believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, pointing to these other signs that were not documented, that are stated here in chapter 2, these other signs, they also cause many to believe in his name. That's what verse 23 tells us of chapter 2. But somehow, somehow, they did not come to believe in his true identity as God. The scripture says they believed in his name, but Jesus did not entrust himself to them because he saw something was not genuine about their faith. So the only thing that we can grasp from this passage is that they trusted that the signs were real. It seems like they had no doubt about that, the signs were real, and that Jesus was exceptional because he was the one performing these signs. They, they recognized he was no ordinary man, but their understanding of Jesus and the work he was doing may have been 
may have come from an earthly worldview. We understand that there were a lot of people who were confused uh, at this time. Even some of the disciples, they, they continually believed that Jesus was here to overthrow the Roman government, that he was going to deliver Israel from Rome, and he was going to be this leader, this general, this, this king, but it was an earthly king. They didn't see his true identity as the Son of God, the King of Kings. I think that's important for us to understand and to pause and think about for a second, because that is easily done. In fact, it's done today by many. Today, there are many that believe in the saving power of Christ. They truly believe in the saving power of Christ, but not his lordship. There are many that say they love him, yet they do nothing to obey him. There are many who want to receive heaven through his name, but at the same time, they profane his name by living like hell. We see that time and time again. Again, so we get a good understanding of what these type of people are and what they look like. I'd like to tell you that that is not genuine faith, and it's not what genuine faith looks like. I was a little disappointed this week. Uh, we went to the grocery store, and I picked out a, a watermelon, brought it home, and I thought I did a really good job of picking out this watermelon uh, I, I follow all the rules that you're supposed to follow in picking this out uh, and, and brought it home and put it in uh, the refrigerator for a whole day and we were going to have great cold sweet watermelon looking forward to it so I put it on top of the counter and I cut it open and when I cut it open it was very promising because when I cut it open the meat on that watermelon was so red and the smell was so intoxicating it was just great and I don't know about you, but in a Hispanic family, when someone picks a good watermelon, it is a celebration. It truly is. It's something to celebrate. My wife right away says, yes. She sees it and she's excited. I'm excited. We're going to cut this thing up. We're going to put it in the fridge. And later on tonight, we're going to have a good, healthy snack. So again, the way it looked, everything was very promising. But as I was cutting it, I got a little taste beforehand, and it was okay. It was just okay. The way it smelled, the way it looked, it, it looked like it was going to be the, the greatest watermelon we picked in 2019. Not like the one that we picked in March of 2017, but 2019. The fact is, is though, when I tasted it, it was just okay. I gave my wife the bad news, and she was disappointed, but we ate it anyway. I bring that up because these people, these people that are described in this passage, and also the people I described who are living today, they, they, they look like believers. They look like it from the outside. But what about when you get to the core? Is the sweetness of Christ in present in their life because we we have a good way of masking things and that's the way I picture these people it says that they believed in his name but the only reason they believed in his name was the sign because of the signs that he was doing so in essence what the passage is really saying is that they believed in the signs that he was doing and 
since they believed in the signs that he was doing, they believed that he could do something for them. Just like when people today, they believe in the saving power of Christ, and the only reason why they believe in the saving power of Christ is because they want to be saved. Who doesn't want to be saved? But yet, they do not put themselves under his lordship. That's why I say a genuine faith does not look like that. That is not genuine faith. Genuine faith is to have faith in Christ, and this is very important, and to walk in repentance. To walk according to his word. Genuine faith means that we are crucified with Christ, and we no longer live, but that he lives in us. That's what genuine faith is. But notice in verses 24 to 25, Jesus sees this because he knows what's in man. It says, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand that. When it says, because he knew all people, we're not talking about like how Brother Gary Moses knows all people, right? We know in Victoria, Brother Gary Moses, he knows almost everybody in town, and everybody in town knows him. That, that's not what we're talking about here. When it says that Jesus knew all people, it means that he knew their intent. He knew their heart. He knew them completely. He was truly man, but he was truly God. And we see him, we see how he can identify the heart of a person. And here, in this case, it says that he did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. He needed no one to bear witness about man. In other words, he knew that their faith was not genuine. The people entrusted his name Excuse me, the people trusted in his name, but he did not entrust himself to them. Now, the other part where these verses are helpful is that they help us to understand Jesus' action, number one, in the temple. Remember, I said this is a pivot passage. So it helps us to understand Jesus' action in the temple and also in his words with his conversation with Nicodemus. Now, once we understand that Jesus knew what was in man, then we see he had every right to throw the people out of the temple. People are shocked when they read the story of the temple and how, how brutal it looked what Jesus did, but he knew what was in man. His actions were just. It was righteous anger. He had every right to do what he did. Maybe if we were to see it happen, we would have been like, wait a second, why are you treating people so harshly? We have to say that because we do not know what's in man. Jesus knew what was in man. So it makes it completely clear that his actions were just in the temple incident. But also in the same way, when he speaks to Nicodemus, he knew what was in Nicodemus's heart and his mind. Now, when we understand that, it helps us to know why the conversation went as it did between the two of them. Because I want you to notice something. Nicodemus comes and he, he, you know, he comes and he's, he's very flattering in his words. And Jesus gets straight to the point. 
And if it were a normal conversation, you'd, we'd be like, wait, wait a second, I'm, I'm, I haven't made those steps yet. Jesus just gets straight to the point. He knows what's in man. He knows what's in his heart. He knows what Nicodemus is here for, and he gives it to him directly. It's a wonderful, wonderful thing. But something we need to recognize in this passage is that by knowing what was in man, Jesus does only what God can do. If we pay attention through the Gospels, especially through the Gospel of John, we'll recognize that Jesus was truly God. Because the Gospel of John goes through great lengths to show us the deity of Christ. And here it is very clear. This is pointing to the deity of Christ. He knew what was in man. Well, only God knows what's in man. It's a wonderful, wonderful uh, picture of Christ. In the, in, in, in the scriptures, time and time again, Jesus knows what was in man's heart, and every time he was right. And the reason why was because he was truly God, or rather, let me correct myself, he is truly God. John, 4, John 10, 14 says, I am the good shepherd. Listen to this very carefully. I know my own, and my own know me. So then the discussion with Nicodemus happens. We know that Jesus knows what's in man. Uh, Verses 23 to 24, they set up this conversation that's going to happen. Uh, Verses 1 through 2. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do uh, unless God is with him. Now, Nicodemus was a high-ranking official among the Pharisees. We know that because the passage says that he was a ruler among the Jews. That means he was a pretty important person. And he shows up in the gospel stories on three separate occasions. One as a believer, or excuse me, one as an unbeliever, two as a believer. This would be the case where he would show up as an unbeliever. And then obviously when he gets uh, done with his conversation with Christ, Christ changes him. Now, one thing we must notice is that he starts off sounding just like those in the previous passage who entrusted themselves to Jesus because of the signs that he had performed. But we must admit that Nicodemus was different. And we must admit that because in the end, Jesus entrusted himself to him. So his unbelief was genuine. He was He was a non-believer to the core, but he was also genuinely seeking the Lord. Again, just like the other, uh, just like the passage, the previous passage says, he knew that Jesus was exceptional. He says it. He says, we know that you are a teacher that comes from God. He knew that Jesus wasn't an ordinary man. There was something different about him. He was exceptional. He also knew that Jesus was powerful because he said, he, he said, no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. Nicodemus acknowledged those two things. You're exceptional. You're not normal. And you're extremely powerful. But he missed the boat just like the others did on his true identity. But as I said before, the difference here is that Jesus entrusted himself to Nicodemus, and we see that he believed. 
Now here comes the part where Jesus knows what's in man, and instead of having this back and forth conversation, this small talk as we say today, Jesus gets to the point. Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you. When Jesus says truly, truly, we need to truly pay attention. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, as I mentioned beforehand, Jesus, he cuts through the flattery of Nicodemus. He gets to the point and he tells Nicodemus what he really came to hear. Now, this is an important verse for us. I had to break down the, uh, the whole conversation with Nicodemus into several sermons because there are some very important truths that are given. And this one here that Jesus says in verse 3, in, in this verse we find the truth of the gospel. We find the truth of the gospel and the foundation of saving faith. It's a beautiful verse. Unless we are born again, we cannot see the kingdom of God. Unless we are born again, we cannot have a relationship with God. Unless we are born again, we cannot spend eternity with God. Unless we are born again, we cannot understand the things of God. That's what that statement means, and even more. So there needs to be something that happens to us in order for us to have fellowship with God. Now that sounds familiar to us, but to Nicodemus, this was like a new concept. In fact, or this was not a new concept, but to him it was a new concept. But it was not a new concept because, in fact, the Old Testament, all the rituals, the customs, they pointed to this fact. I don't know if you remember, but when we spoke about Jesus turning the water into wine, he did it in ceremonial pots. And these pots, they fill with water. Well, the whole reason why these ceremonial pots were at this wedding was because all the Jews had to go and they had to wash themselves. They had to wash themselves in a ceremonial way before they ate and before they did certain things. Now, this was something that they were commanded to do by the law. So time and time again, they were required by the law to perform a ceremonial washing of themselves. And that was to remind them that they had the filth of sin on them and that they needed to be washed clean. They needed a cleansing. They were required to wash daily. And the reason why was because this would remind them that one day God would provide a way for them to be completely clean. And that day had arrived. It had arrived in Christ. The new birth Jesus speaks of signifies a new life. And when I say it's a new life, it's a new way of being. It's a new way of thinking. It's a new way of living. It's a completely new person. That's why the terminology of being born again is perfect, because that's what it means. 
it signified a complete cleansing, or if you want to use another analogy, a release from the bondage of the sinful nature. And to that of the new man in Christ. You see, the same is true for us today. That's what it signifies. We were no different than the Israelites. We, we needed to be cleansed. We were stained with the filth of sin. And if we were living in the times before Jesus, we would be required to wash ourselves in a ceremonial way. It was a constant reminder of our filth and the need for us to be clean. God provided that through Jesus Christ. And unless you were born again, unless you are completely cleansed by the atoning sacrifice that Jesus provided on the cross, you cannot and you will not see the kingdom of God. I want you to notice something very important here. And this is where this is extremely important for our time, our day and age. The passage says, unless you are born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. Notice it, what it didn't say. It didn't say, repeat this prayer after me and you will receive the kingdom of God. It did not say that. It didn't say, accept Jesus into your heart and you will see the kingdom of God. It didn't say, unless you speak in tongues, then you will receive the kingdom of God. It didn't say, if your good outweighs your bad, then you will see the kingdom of God. And it didn't say you must bind Satan and claim your salvation and then you will see the kingdom of God. It didn't say any of those things. It says you must be born again. Unless one is born again, he cannot be with God. And this is where verses 4 and 6 are so important. Nicodemus, in response to what Jesus said, he asked a really good question. How can a man be born again when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Now, either this is extreme sarcasm or Nicodemus didn't have any idea what was going on. But let's go with the second. Let's say he did not understand what was going on. I would like to point out, neither would we. Because he's, and I'm talking about us before Christ, He's thinking from an earthly perspective because that's all he's equipped with. At this point, he is not equipped with the spirit to understand spiritual things. You see, you and I were no different before our rebirth. Until the Lord entrusted himself to us and gifted us with the Holy Spirit, we didn't get it either. We can't give ourselves that credit. He's thinking earthly terms but Jesus opens his mind and when he opens his mind he reveals to him how one is truly saved listen to this verses 5 and 6 truly truly I say to you unless one is born of water and the spirit he cannot enter the kingdom of God that which is born of the flesh is flesh and that which is born of the spirit 
Now, many commentators and scholars believe that John had Ezekiel 36, verses 25 to 27 in mind here. And I, I happen to follow along with that. It is a perfect explanation of what Jesus is talking about when he says, unless one is born of water. It's not talking about the act of baptism, but rather listen to this out of Ezekiel 36, verses 25 to 27. I will sprinkle clean water on you. And you shall be clean from your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. I hope you paid attention when I was reading. Where's our part in there? Where's the part that we, 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 we reach up to God, we choose God, we help God? Where is that in there? Somebody point that out to me. It's not in there. Do we see the actions of God in this passage? I will sprinkle clean water on you. I will remove the heart of stone. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit. And I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you. And I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. We are merely the vessels. And God is doing his work in us. See, according to the Old Testament prophets, the people needed to be purified and resurrected to a new life. That was the constant message. Israelite, the, the Israel, you have sinned. You need to be purified and resurrected. The rebirth that Jesus speaks of includes these two points. The cleansing and the resurrection. First, the rebirth signifies the cleansing we receive by Christ and his substitutionary death on the cross. In other words, he took our place on the cross. We were the ones who were covered with filth, with the filth of sin. And we were the ones who were utterly sinful. Jesus, he was the one who was truly clean. And he took, his, he took our filth upon himself. And I might add, when he took our filth upon himself, he removed it from us. And he, faith, he faced the wrath of God in our place. Listen to this, 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. I love that verse because all the stuff that I said beforehand, it it says it perfectly. He who knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. That's the cleansing that Jesus is talking about through the rebirth. Secondly, the rebirth signifies the resurrected life we receive from God. You see, as part of the rebirth process, we are given a new heart from God. 
Ezekiel says, the book of Ezekiel says that he removes the heart of stone. That, that represents the heart of rebellion, the heart of disobedience. It's stone because it does not move. It cannot be shaped. It can only be broken, and that's what God does to our will. He breaks us. So it's this heart of stone. He removes that from us, and he replaces it with a heart of flesh. And that is a, a picture of a heart of obedience. And this is all the work of the Spirit. This is what it means to be born again. And it points to only what God can do. So we come to the conclusion of the sermon. And I want to say, blessed are you who sin that the Lord will never count against them. Because that means that God has caused you to be born again. Blessed are you. Listen very carefully, church. God the Father elected you to be saved. And he did this out of his own goodness and grace. Christ provided the means by which you were saved. And he did this by his holiness. And the Holy Spirit did the saving work in you. And he did this by his power. All we were and all we ever are are the vessels. That's why it is said in Matthew 11, chapter, or Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30, Jesus says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. That's exactly what Jesus is talking about in that passage. He's not talking about taking our troubles away here on this earth. He's talking about the struggle and the work for salvation. He says, it's all done. It's done by me. In me, you will find rest for your souls. The last thing I'd like to share with you as I end this sermon, and I think this is extremely important. Unless you are born again, Unless you are born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. That goes for everybody in here. From the oldest to the youngest. From the richest to the poorest. From the most powerful to the weakest. Unless you are born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. This goes beyond a lot of the gimmicks practiced in churches today to receive Jesus into their hearts. That's, that's what's said. A lot of things are said. It's nonsense. Listen to me very carefully. And this goes, if you think you've been a Christian for 30 years, or if you think you've been a Christian for one year, unless you have been cleansed by the blood of Christ, and your heart has been changed by the power of his Holy Spirit, you will not see the kingdom of God. The wonderful thing for you is that you are here today. And today is a day to be reborn and counted as a child of God. God has given you that grace today. 
I hope you respond in faith and in repentance. Let's pray.